I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. Here's your host, Adam Taylor. Well, up, everybody. This is a glorious Monday, the best type of Monday. It's a Monday where the clean sweeps happen. We sent Philly packing. There ain't no cheese steaks up in this grill. I'm telling you that right now. How you doing? I'm joined by Mr. Wayne Bryan, Mr. Tim Shields. We're recording straight after the Boston Celtics victory number four. That's the sweep, first ever Celtic sweep of the Sixers. How y'all feeling? Excellent. <laughs> I'm Tony the Tiger. Great. I'm great. Just like we called it, man. Just like we called it. Yeah, I mean, look, let's be real. And I want to start off being real because I don't want no home-ass slander being thrown my way. This is a sweep because there was no Ben Simmons. This is a sweep because their best perimeter defender was not participating in any of the four games. Do not let that take away from the fact that Kemba Walker put the team on his back for games three and four, and Jason Tatum carried the team for games one and two. Jalen Brown played Batman, played Robin to both of those guys, Batman, in games one, two, three, and four. We had some great Marcus Smart moments. The Celtics were just ready, baby. These guys came out ready to punch these guys, punch Philly in the mouth. Philly took the blow and never really came back. The one thing, first thing I want to touch on is I hope Tobias Harris is okay. Luckily, he came back onto the court after taking that big blow to the head. He participated the game, which means that there was no concussion to enter concussion protocol. Hopefully, there's nothing that kind of arises from this in a day or two once the swelling starts to come out. Hopefully, he's okay. Now, where are we going to start with this? Games one and two, Embiid was playing the drop. The Celtics were getting whatever they wanted in the mid-range. Games three... Embiid started to push up. Celtics started to get more on backdoor cuts, but they were finding it very difficult to get their shot off. Game four, today's game, yesterday's game, if you're listening to this, Josh Richardson switched upon to Jason Tatum and gave Tatum all sorts of beef, all of the smoke, every last little bit of the smoke. How did you guys see Jason Tatum dealing with that early? He got going in the second, but he really struggled to get his shot off anywhere from the mid-range out in the first half against Josh Richardson. I think generally what we saw from Jason Tatum was kind of a slow buildup. I think for him, especially this game, the way that Philly knows they had to key in on him, just because so far in this series, what we've seen so far in the playoffs, Jason Tatum has been by far our best player. I think, I don't think that can be debated. You know, through the first two games, he was averaging what, 30 points, nine rebounds. He's the youngest player to do it since Kareem or something like that. And I think that they tried to focus on him, get him bothered a little bit. He started to heat up. I know that he didn't take a ton of threes this game. Um, he had a big one down down the stretch in game four. But overall, it seems like Boston also had to adjust in the offensive end. So I think Jason Tatum was learning to try and get to the cup, draw some contact. Uh, and he had to fight through some bodies there. He had a couple in this most recent game where he was just fighting all kinds of defense. So I think for... Boston mainly was just trying to get Tatum open and also being able to defer to some of their other offensive options in order to make sure they were just getting buckets. I think they really keyed on him defensively. Yeah, games three and four, Jason Tatum struggled, uh, especially game three. Game three was probably his second worst game in the bubble. Uh, even though he still finished, I think he finished with 14. He, he was he just couldn't get his shots off. It just seemed like he was into that. He got into foul trouble very early in that game. He had those two quick fouls. And then after that, it was just – it just seemed like they were force-feeding Jason Tatum. Like, hey, man, take the ball, get you a shot off so you can kind of, like, heat up or whatnot. And it just never really came around. Toward the end of the game, though, game three, 
he started to come along and he started to put up some points and we sealed the deal. And game four, as you can see, like it looked like Philly just amped up, ramped up the defense. They put a faster, quicker guy on him. Uh, he he was just bunnies. He was just hopping and trying to contest every one of Jason Tatum's, you know, shots. He was all up in his face. Tatum couldn't get around screens, couldn't get around the picks that were set. And Josh Richardson was just playing like a pesty on-ball type defense. But Jason Tatum and the Celtics, they prevailed. You saw Jason Tatum hit some big shots. I mean, the one with the handout that was deep from the three-point, mid-three-point mid range. It was just like, oh, my gosh, it was in your face. Jason Tatum's a superstar. We all know this. Superstars are not going to be able to go out there night in and night out and drop you 40, 50 points, but it's their contributions on the floor for everything else that they do, the hustle stats, the rebounds, getting to the rim. Can we talk about Jason Tatum's block shots? Let's talk about how he plays the passing lanes. There's so many other good things and good factors that Jason Tatum brings to the Boston Celtics, and this is why, my friends, he is a superstar. He's not going to be a superstar. He is a superstar. So kudos to the Boston Celtics team for going ahead and winning this four in a row. Yeah, I mean, you touched upon it there, man. It's contributions when your shot's not falling. In game four, that was JT's second double-double of the series. He's been pulling down boards. He's been, as you said, he's been able to block shots. We've seen a little bit of facilitation out of him from the pick and roll, especially in games one and two when there was more space to get your pass off than there was in three and four. He's definitely been special, man. Kemba Walker, however, was ridiculous in games three and four. Now, I've been on this podcast before saying I don't think Kemba's the right guy for this Celtics offense. I was wrong. I hold my hands up. Uh, Kemba's converted me at the moment. I feel like Kemba Walker was ridiculous in these last two games. His shot was falling from deep. He, no, and I've tweeted this. I think I tweeted it after, in the, after the first quarter in every single game. The Sixers just couldn't stay in front of him. There was just no way. Once he turned the Jets on, they were on his hip or they were behind him. There was no way they were able to get in front of him. And in game four, they used Kemba specifically to target Shake Milton in that pick and roll scheme and coming in off the corner. And Kemba got up to 20 by the half, dude. Kemba was just able to get whatever he wanted on Shake. If they switched a big on to him, Kemba would just come under in reverse or he'd drive and kick out. Is that dribble drive penetration that he offers is ridiculous. If JT's threes were falling in this game in the first half and JB was getting a few more clear looks because there was a couple of times that JB kind of got left wide open and nobody fed him the rock. Then Kemba's probably finishing with close to 10 assists. It was one of those nights where everything was stop-start. The refs were definitely against Boston in game three and four. Let's not kid ourselves on that. But yo, Kemba, if he plays like that in game in the early few games against Toronto then he might be able to give the Celtics a one or 2 nothing lead in that series where then it can be handed back over to JT and JB. What do you guys see from Kemba if I missed anything? No, I think hammer meets nail in that. I think everything we saw from Kemba the last two games has been huge. And listen, when it comes down to officiating, you don't want to use it as an excuse for a loss. And it seems like the Celtics in both games three and four, especially game three, they didn't let it face them. And especially the way that Kemba closed those games out. Kemba was a huge part of that game three run, including hitting some massive shots towards the end of it. And overall, being able to, to defer to him in those clutch moments, you know, he's known for being cardiac Kemba, for throwing down some serious, serious mean shots when the game is on the line. And he did so in these two games. I think when I think back at some of the older Celtics teams, especially when they had Kyrie there and they were in these kind of situations where you've got calls going against you and you have to fight not only against the other team, but the officiating, 
those teams kind of crumple, and I, I didn't see it with this team. And I know that they were expected to have the upper hand with Ben Simmons out, but to play through that and have a guy like Kemba come in and lead you that way he did, that's big. And he just had his two biggest iconic games with the Celtics, two big, pure, like 100% quintessential Boston Celtics moments. You got to love it. Cardiac Kemba. I tried to tell you guys that he's back. I know we were worried about his knees. I know we were worried about his health. I know we'll probably be worried about it after the playoffs is over with or whatnot. But this guy, I told you, he is a baller. It's in his blood. It's in his veins. And he goes out and he was going to play this type of basketball. I like the way that he paced himself to have these games because you did not think that Jason Tatum may struggle in these games. I think I would say Jalen Brown was probably most consistent and gave you the, the same around you know, average points night in and night out. But when Jason Tatum had his down games, Cardiac says, don't worry, team. I'm going to put you on my back, and I'm going to help us get over these humps, and we're going to keep it moving. And he did just that. I mean, you got to witness it, and I've been seeing it since his UConn playing days. And this is why, Adam, I said you can't count a guy like this out. Listen, all I'm going to say is this. Kemba Walker is doing everything that we expected Kyrie Irving to do last year, but better. And – does this, not, does this mean he's better than Kyrie Irving? For the Celtics, absolutely yes. But does this mean he's better than Kyrie Irving as a player? No. But for the Celtics, he is the perfect fit. He's doing what he needs to do. He's allowing the other guys to still grow. And Kimba is, is the perfect complement piece. We said it on the show before. He doesn't have to be the number one option, but he can be. He doesn't have to be the number two option, but he can be. He doesn't have to be the third or fourth option, but he can be. I think Kimba accepting the role of the chameleon, that's what I'm going to call him because he can pretty much play any option and, and, get, his, and get his points off or do whatever it is he needs to do on the court, man. I think watching Kimba come off a of pick and rolls is just amazing. I mean, they set the pick, he gets to the side, and it's swish. And, Adam, you are a genius when you talk about mid-range game. I, I never, ever want to see the Celtics shoot middies, ever. Like threes or get to the basket. But good golly, they all, they're, they're all hitting mid-range shots. And it's got to be predicated from the type of offense that they're running. So when you break that down later on on the show, like I can't, it's, it's just amazing. If you guys are watching what the Celtics are doing, you watch Jalen Brown hit mid-range shots, Jason Tatum taking floaters, uh, um, Wanamaker coming off of mid-range. He had a couple of weird shots too. Marcus Smart taking shots off the mid. Like it's just what the Celtics are doing because the teams are playing that drop deep. They're dropping that defender down in the paint. So shout out to Kimba. He's doing what he needs to do. Please Remain healthy. Keep staying fired up. Cardiac is back, baby. I mean, I want to premise this with saying I do not recall you ever telling me Kemba's going to be good. Really? No, I'm just lying. Um, oh. I'm saving face. I'm so <laughs> 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 no, I mean, let, let's be real here. Even his defense was good. There was multiple possessions over game three and four where he stripped Embiid down on the low block just from being pesky and staying active. They were hiding him in the corner a lot on the weak side and then rotating a man over, which is what we saw during um, the seeding games as well. They kind of trialed out that scheme using like a 2-1-2 a zone or a 1-2-2 zone. They'd switch between those two types and hide Kemba on the weak side. 
But Kemba got really involved in games three and four. He was very active. He wanted to be part of those defensive possessions. And he made some good big-time plays on multiple occasions. I don't see how he can be a negative at this point. But when you look against Toronto, because the guy that's guarding him is most likely going to be Kyle Lowry. They're going to try, I'm assuming they're going to put Fred Van Vliet onto Marcus Smart and have those two guards matching up. And then Lowry might switch at points. But majority, you'll see Kyle Lowry on Kemba. Now, Kyle Lowry's a very respectable, damn good defender. But I just don't think he has the lateral quickness to stay in front of Kemba the same way the Sixers didn't have the speed to stay in front of Kemba. The only difference is you're playing a team with their own version of Marcus Smart is that their version can score lights out in Fred Van Vliet. I'd say Fred, if Marcus Smart's defense is a 10, then you're putting Fred Van Vliet at a 9.2 to a 9.5. There's not too much of a drop-off. There's enough to be noticeable, but not enough to say that it's a wash. And Fred Van Vliet's having a series at the moment. He's going into a contract year. He's in a contract year going into free agency. He wants to get paid. He's going to be wanting to take that Raptors team as deep as possible. Kyle Lowry's tasted success. He's got that ring on his finger, which means he's got that chip on his shoulder to show that they can get they can get deep into these playoffs without La- um, Kawhi. Sorry, excuse me. It's going to be tough. I just don't think none of them are able to deal with Kemba, and it's going to be the same again. They're going to put Mark Gasol in a drop when Gasol's on the floor because Gasol doesn't have the speed to close out and defend defenders in the perimeter. When that happens, there's going to be mid-ranges available again, and the Celtics have shown their assassins. The difference is the Toronto have got some serious wing defense in Siakam and Anobi, and that's going to be where the real toughness is. Getting JT and JB open and getting them going early is going to be key for the Celtics in every game of that series. I think it's also fair to say that there's a massive coaching gap, right, between Nick Nurse, who, by the way, congrats to Nick Nurse, one coach of the year, uh, again, <laughs> Um, Nick Nurse coming in and being the way that he is in terms of scheming, I feel like is going to be a massive upgrade when you're looking at in comparison to a guy like Brett Brown. So I think it's going to be a very different series. You know, I think we saw Philly and Toronto give Boston problems in the past, especially when you look at a guy like Mark Gasol or Joel Embiid. Bigs like that are always going to be a problem for Boston until some changes are made. But the way that it's been, I don't know, spun about. Like, Toronto is like this big rival of ours in terms of like, oh, we're going to face them somewhere down the line. When's the last time that we faced Toronto in a series? It's been a long time, right? Does anybody know how long it's been? Because I, I was thinking about it. We've, it's kind of been building up the past few years. Ever since Toronto kind of made that changeover with Kawhi and just I feel like there's been this buildup of finally facing them off in the playoffs and we just haven't seen it. So that makes me a little bit nervous. I don't think we saw their whole scheme when we faced them in the bubble. So I'm interested to see like what they're going to be doing on both sides of the ball. Because of the teams left in the East, obviously Milwaukee is one of them that you have to worry about and same with Toronto. But I think Toronto is one of the few teams that's in the same airspace as Boston defensively. And that in itself is going to be a challenge. Yeah, it's definitely going to be like like World War Three. It's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be Oh, man. Both of these teams match up really well. I will say that I think because of the bigs that Toronto has, it will present a problem. Not like Embiid, though. Not like how Embiid presented a problem, like getting the ball on the block or things like that. I don't Mark, – Marcus Saul, to me, isn't the same type of player. He can stretch the defense. Ibaka can stretch the defense. I think the way the Celtics played him in the bubble – 
is pretty much what you're going to probably see. I think my only concerns are, you know, Adam talked about Kemba guarding, you know, Kyle Lowry. Kyle Lowry, Kyle Lowry is like a, a, a little bulldog, and he's strong, and he gets to the paint. And I just don't want our guards to get into foul trouble. I don't want our bigs to get into foul trouble, neither. You may see more of Robert Williams in this game, um, but it's definitely going to be a tough task, a tall task, and a tough task. It's going to be both tasks. Uh, but I think this is probably going to be, you know, a good old seven-game type series where it's just night in and night out. You you just have to tune in and watch what's going to happen. Uh, they're both both teams are going to come in with a game plan. I do think that Boston will up their ante, though. They do seem to play against uh, play well against better teams uh, for some strange reason. Jason Tatum seems to be more locked in. I think now we're getting a locked in Kimba. So we didn't have a locked in Kimba before, you know, because he was going through the you know minute restrictions and things like that in the bubble. So I think that uh, it's going to be tough. This is not going to be a cakewalk. I didn't think that the Philly games were going to be a cakewalk either. I thought we would win. I just thought the games were going to be relatively close. These games might come down to the wire just about each and every game. Or maybe one night you might see one team win by 10, next night by 10. But they're going to relatively end in close results because these teams on paper are just like the perfect pairing. Like They're like the counter to each team. And if that's what's going to be fun about watching this series. So... I'm I'm excited to see what's going to happen. I can't wait to see the matchups. I like what Adam talked about, those two guards of theirs. But we got some guards of ours. We got some wings. They got wings. Oh, and we did not talk about how well both benches are. So I, I will give the edge to Toronto's bench. But if our bench is hitting, shoot. Man, listen. So I want to drop some numbers for your headpiece real quick. So Toronto, this is all these stats that I'm going to drop are up until yesterday, the 22nd of August, 2020. They do not include today's games, just to preface that. Toronto is number one in the bubble in defense. No team plays better defense than Toronto. They're only allowing 103.2 points per 100 possessions. Number two, Boston. Boston are second in the bubble in defense, only allowing 106.7 points per 100 possessions. Here's where the the script gets flipped. Toronto's offense, 20th in the bubble. That's 20th to zero. There's only two teams playing worse offensively than Toronto right now. Toronto are only putting up 106.4 per 100 possessions. Boston, however, I hear you say Boston. Boston, however, Boston are ninth. They're in the top 10 for offense and top 10 for defense. Ninth in offense with 116.1 points per 100 possessions. This is going to be the immovable object against the irresistible force. Two of the best defensive teams going up against each other, but one of them can score lights out too. It's going to be a war. I can see it going six. I can see it going seven. There isn't, I do not envision a sweep in this one at all. Not in my wildest, wildest dreams. It's, um, it's interesting. I mean, just some of the numbers I can start throwing out, but let's not get too boring. All you need to know is that Boston, the uh, second in the league in point differential having 9.4 points scored more than they allow. Where are Toronto, I hear you ask? Where are Toronto? Toronto are fifth, scoring 3.2 points more per 100 than what they allow to be scored on them. It's going to be rough. Real, real, real rough. Tim, I know you've got a stat you want to drop real quick to correct yourself, then we're going to hit the break. I did a little bit of research while others were discussing. Uh, Toronto and Boston have never met in the playoffs, ever. Uh, Not once. Never, 
not in their existence. And they've played a total of 97 games against each other overall. And Boston has taken 57 out of those 97 wins. So, I mean, interesting. a little bit surprising to me. And I think part of that also has to do with the fact that the Raptors oftentimes have lined up against the Cavaliers or the Heat in the playoffs. And they kind of just – I think one way or another, there was all these other factors where the Raptors ended up facing against the team that ended up going to the finals at some point. So it's always kind of been that way. Before we end, before we hit break, I want you to both take a guess at which team's leading the bubble in offense. Miami. I mean, my or Houston. Miami is twelfth. Okay. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say it's probably Milwaukee. I mean, in offense. In offense, Milwaukee is fourteenth. Houston is nineteenth. What? Does this hang on? Does this include teams that are no longer in the bubble? It does. Okay, so Phoenix has got to be up there. Phoenix. Phoenix is second. I'm just going to keep guessing until we get it right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that you that's kind of the game here. Quick, quick, quick. So we can go to break. What's the answer? <laughs> Portland. Ah. Uh, they kind of had to. Second worst defense in the bubble. Best <laughs> offense. That's why. <laughs> you have to. Tease <laughs> where they had to go like 150 and up. Yeah, makes sense. Gotcha. Okay, we're going to shoot to break now that we finally found the right answer on that one. We'll be back shortly. Mavericks can't catch a break, right? Christoph Porzingis being ruled out of the game and during shoot around. They had the last game without Doncic. The Mavs just aren't being being lucky after winning the first game against the Clippers. Yeah, it's an, it's unfortunate for them. I didn't think Doncic was going to even play today. Uh, I mean, yesterday. I didn't even think he was going to play. I, I thought he was hurt, and I thought maybe they should just gracefully bow out and move on to next season. But he's a soldier, so he's out there. It's tough. Like, I really want the Mavs to have some playoff success. And I really, really like Luka Doncic. A lot of people were criticizing the decision to put him back out there after he tweaked it. I tend to agree with that just because a lot of people are saying, oh, it's risking your entire franchise future. To be honest, I don't think it's that extreme. But in my mindset, look, see if you can win without him. Make sure that he's rested and he's not going to re-aggravate an injury that he just got for the sake of coming into a game that you eventually lost anyway. I know hindsight's twenty twenty, but they should have been a little bit smarter there, rested him, made sure he was okay for the next game. There's no reason rushing him back out there. You have to deal with what you got, and the Clippers are a very tough team, so I get it, but I don't think it's worth risking potential future playoff success, especially this season, if it means that, well, if we rested him, didn't risk him going out and getting re-injured again, he would have been in better shape for this game that we can actually win. I don't know. It it was a bad decision in my mind. You know who else is a tough team? Miami. Miami about to get up against Milwaukee once both of those two teams win their respective series and make life real, 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 real tough on Milwaukee. I'm really intrigued to watch that series. I try not I don't really have time to keep up with every basketball game that takes place, but I will be doing my best to watch every one of those games between those two teams because you've got to scout the enemy. The question is, how confident, let's be honest now, take the homerism out of, out of the equation. Boston, Toronto, how confident are you of Boston coming out? 60-40. 60-40, only because I feel like Boston, even with Philly's issues, they were still tested in the first round. 
I think you saw a lot. I mean, like we said, games three and four, we saw Kemba Walker really step into his own as a Celtic and leaving his fingerprints all over those games. You saw Jason Tatum do what he does. And then we also saw him adapt to having a slow start. And he still was, you know, a positive in every single game he played in. You know, threes aren't falling. Okay, time to defer to other people or get to the cup, get free throws. So I think we saw the Celtics kind of learn a little bit about themselves in this round, whereas I don't think Toronto's learning anything against the Nets, who don't have Kevin Durant, who don't have Kyrie Irving, amongst a slew, an entire horde of other injuries and people staying out of the bubble. Like, they're bringing in people off the street, like bets off the street to come and play. So I don't think the situations are comparable when you look at that sweep that's eventually going to happen. I just feel better about the Celtics. I feel like they had much more of a challenge in the first round, even if it is a sweep. It's still Philly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm at 65, 35, maybe 70, 30. Listen, my reasoning is simple. Boston, I still have yet to see Boston play like that, that superb, excellent Boston Celtics that we saw when they beat the snot out of like a, a team like the Brooklyn Nets or whatnot. Like they still haven't played that, and they, and they can though. It's there. It's in. It's in them to play that type of basketball. I mean, even Coach Stevens said, "Look, we can't finish the game like we did. Like we got to play better in the last three minutes of a game." I mean, dude, you're winning. The game was pretty much over, and the last three minutes they couldn't like score a basket. They were getting turnovers, things like that, against a team like Philly. So they're still trying to improve. My thing is if Boston is hitting on all cylinders, and I'm talking about not just hitting shots offensively, I'm talking about making the right pass, not making silly turnovers, getting offensive rebounds. I think they will uh, – getting defensive rebounds. I think they're going to rebound better against a team like Toronto. I don't know what it is about Embiid. He's just like a magnet. But when it comes to a team like Toronto, the guards are going to re- re- uh, rebound better because you're going to see Kyle Lowry in there trying to get rebounds over guards. And our guards can rebound. Kimball, little 5-2 self, can rebound like he's getting boards. So that's why I got the number pro- kind of high. And if they get past the Raptors, I I don't care who they play. I think they – I think – I think – their mindset will be set to take them to the next level to get into that final round. Yeah, I mean, I'm the same. I feel like there's a switch. Nobody's flipped right now. There's a switch. There's another level that Tatum can go to. There's another lem- level that Kemba can take his game to. Jalen Brown again is another level. Marcus Smart plays on one level, and that level's level number one, top level. There's definitely points that can be improved, but I just know there's a switch that's waiting to be flipped. And I feel like against Toronto, you're going to need to flip that switch. That I feel like Toronto is going to bring out that flipping of the switch at the same time. They're going to push these guys into being like, right, then it's time to turn on playoff mode. Due to that, I feel like it's going to be a 75% chance Boston come through and a 25% chance that Toronto make it through. I'm going high odds because I feel like that while Toronto are solid defensively, offensively, they just do not have the firepower to hang with the Celtics. The Celtics have played against stern defenses throughout the league. Philly was a stern de- was supposedly a stern defense with Tybull. That who did they have? Matisse Tybull was meant to be a defensive problem. Tobias Harris, Joel Embiid. They were meant to have guys that were able to slow down the Celtics, and the Celtics found ways to kind of compete with them and compete with their system and find wrinkles. Now, somebody on here said it earlier. I think it was you, Tim. It might have been you, Wayne. I can't remember to be quite honest with you both. That this is going to be a different coaching matchup because going up against Nick Nurse is different to going up against Brett Brown. Ah, it was Tim. Okay, I can see Tim pointing at himself. That's true. 
it's complete. I mean, there's no, there's no dispute in that Nick Nurse is a better coach. Nick Nurse has better schemes, and the, the adjustments that the Celtics are going to face in that series are completely different to the lack of adjustments they faced against the Sixers. With that being said, Brad Stevens is pretty damn good at making those adjustments too, and he has more versatile players to make those adjustments with. Philly's bench up is deeper. Boston's bench is more unpredictable. There's games like in game, was it game three where, or game two where the bench came in and really swung game two where the bench came in and really swung the tide in that game in Boston's favour. You've got guys like Romeo Langford that can come in and really cause havoc on the defensive end. Grant Williams can come in and hit a couple of big threes. Shemi can come in and foul out within a couple of seconds. That's okay, though. It's, a, it's one of those things. You drop Ennis Cantor in there, and Ennis Cantor's going to be... I mean, this is playoff Ennis Cantor. This is what I warned you all about for months leading up to the playoffs. I'm not too worried. I'm concerned, but I'm not scared. I feel like it's different this year. I think when I, when I think about the teams of the past, I feel like there haven't been moments where I'm like, yes, they overcame a serious challenge. I feel like oftentimes when you see fouls going against you and you got calls not going your way and you're going against a team that's given you problems and then you're asked to go ahead and try and win that game, you see Celtics fold before. And maybe maybe this has to do with the bubble. Maybe it honestly has to do with the fact that there are no fans there, they're pumping in crowd noise, and it's as much of a neutral environment as it possibly could be. So even with the quote-unquote home cooking with refs, you're still seeing them overcome that. And I don't know, maybe, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe I'm just making it all up in my head. But I just think there's a certain level of toughness that this team has. And I don't know. I definitely think there's another level to it, but I don't know how far that goes. I just think that this team mentally is a very tough team, especially considering when you think about it, they had a game one win, they lost Gordon Hayward. And since then they ripped off three straight wins in convincing fashion. So chalk it up to whatever you want to call it, but I think this team is made out of some tougher stuff. There's a lot of chemistry there. This team runs the floor well together, and we're seeing them start to hit new levels. And I think that's going to continue, even against a tough matchup like Toronto. I think this is what a lot of guys came here for. Ennis Kanter Kanter had an amazing playoff run last year with – with the Blazers and got to the Western Conference Finals. And I think that's possible if you use them the right way here. And so far, so good. 4-0. Yeah, you talk about Ennis Canner, man, and he was probably one of my favorite signings in the offseason. One, he came to play for no money. And two, I, I said that if you can get him into this tournament somehow, into these playoffs, he can give you great play. And – what, what he we needed him against Joel Embiid. Like, believe it or not, he was the guy with the biggest girth that can kind of like just put a body onto Joel Embiid and kind of slow him down a little bit. I just just a tad bit, not not much because Embiid was still getting a lot of his shots off. But that's my point, guys. I don't see Marcus Saul putting moves on Ennis Canner, Daniel. T- I, like, can he shoot and hit some shots? Absolutely. He's a better shooter than Joel. But I don't see him putting a lot of those same moves on. Plus, Marcus Saul's a little bit older as well. So, can you imagine if they had to ignite and flip the switch on an Ennis Canner where he just turns into an offensive machine? Like, it can happen. These are the games 
this is the series. This is the matchup because you're going to probably see him rotate the five, maybe play some to four, depending on where Ibaka comes into the game or whatnot, depending on how it goes down. You know, Celtics just got to stay out of foul trouble. What you both said is that they need to ignite that switch. And I'm going to tell you right now that the Raptors are going to do everything in their arsenal to flip that switch. I don't think they realize that they need, they, they're going to light a fire in the Celtics. And once they do, and once that flip is switched, once the fire is lit, it's going to be good luck. And you're going to see Super Saiyan Celtics all over the court. And I mean, I'm talking about off the bench. And like you said, if you can get a guy like Grant Williams to come in and just give you good 10 to 11 minutes of, of hustle energy and two threes, that's successful. If Brad Watermaker could come in and keep the offense flowing, give you a couple of big shots, that's successful. So this is what the Celtics have been doing. And who's to say that Brad wasn't playing around with the lineup? As you know, he allowed these guys to play. He allowed the bench to play more than probably any team in the NBA. And I'm talking about when the Celtics were going down and they started, the, the other team started taking, the uh, Philly started taking the lead or whatnot. You still saw the bench guys in there. You still saw the rotational guys in there. Hey, guys, you're going to have to play through this thing called adversity and figure it out. And that, my friends, is why I think the Celtics are going to be tough to beat. Am I on my high horse because they swept the Philadelphia 76ers for all? Yeah. But, I mean, my point is they faced adversity all season, and they're continuing to do it, and they're continuing to supersede through that adversity. So, good luck. Can't wait to see what's going to go down in this matchup. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Mark Gasol isn't as a, a big of offensive threat as what Joel Embiid is. Mark Gasol's more of a floor-stretching threat, which is really going to put pressure on Enes Kanter if Enes Kanter's on the floor because you don't want to bring Enes Kanter that high up. It's a problem. He's also going to put pressure on someone like Daniel Tice because you're going to want Daniel Tice playing that perimeter. But if Mark Gasol get, beats him on the first step, then Gasol's got the strength to hold him on his hip. The other thing about Mark Gasol that you need to remember is this is a former defensive player of the year. Like, this is one of the premier defensive bigs in the league. Granted, the, when he won that was like, what, seven years ago? I think it was like 2013 when he was defensive player of the year. Let me fact check myself. Yep, it was 2013 when he was one defensive. Regardless, you don't win defensive player of the year without being a transcendent defensive player, especially as a big and rim protecting. I know bigs generally win it. Then you look at somebody like Sergio Bakker that they've got there. Serge Ibaka's a three-time NBA All-Defensive First Team. Three years consistently. He's led the league in blocks twice. He's a threat on def when defending the paint. And when you're coming against a team like the Celtics, that if their threes aren't falling, they're going to want to beat you on the dribble drive. Having two all-time defensive bigs in that rotation to kind of clog those lanes is going to be a problem. Throw in Siakam, who's one of the most improved players in the league, a first-time All-Star this year, who's got ridiculous length. And then throwing OG and Obi, that's probably going to be one of the better wing defensive wings in the league in a few more years. That's a big issue. And then you look at this. This is what I was looking at before while you guys were having a little discussion. I was a bit checked out because I was doing some research. In my head, I was like, the Celtics are going to beat Toronto on the fast break. That's how you're going to put Toronto in problems. Apparently, according to NBA stats, since the playoffs began, Toronto are fifth in the league in pace. Boston are 13th. Boston a 13th in pace. Toronto play a faster brand of basketball than what the Celtics did against Philly. So can you beat those guys on a fast break? Is it possible when they're playing at a faster pace than you are anyway? Because Boston tend to run the break and then kind of reset their half-court offense and look for the best opportunity. Toronto are just outrunning cats. 
They know they've got the length. They know they can hit the threes. They need to bail out of the drive. Boston, however, need to work that offense. They need to find the wrinkles. They need to kind of attack the seams. It's going to be a real kind of difference between those two. And the fact that you're coming in against a team with multiple defensive issues in, in the players, aforementioned players, against a team where their best defensive player is a guard in Marcus Smart, who they can almost match pound for pound with Fred Van Vliet, going to be a really tough matchup. And I still feel like 75% Celtics coming through is right, but somebody somewhere is going to get a blooded nose in game one. And then it's all about how you react in game two. I feel like we're kind of rehashing points at this point. All I need to say is we're super stoked. The Celtics swept the Sixers. First time they ever swept the Sixers. Do you remember when it was all that, oh, well, you know, we, we won in the regular season. Oh, what's the regular season? It means nothing. We will see you again on Wednesday when we'll have a little bit more clarity of what's going on around the league. We'll understand more where Miami kind of sit, where Milwaukee are kind of sitting. Do Milwaukee lose another game to Orlando? I sure hope so. Do Miami come out of this in a four-row series against Indiana? Most likely. Do Boston win the first game against Toronto? We won't know on Wednesday, but we will know by Friday. If Or if we don't know by Friday, we'll know by next Monday. We will know shortly anyway. We'll catch you again on Wednesday, guys, when we come up with some new topics to discuss.